very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world and I want to welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mal Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And if you want to listen to tonight's full interview, and believe me, you want to, go to our website and click on that subscribe button. You'll get your login immediately and you'll be able to enjoy tonight's show and every single one we've ever done. And again, to upgrade your life, head on over to sanitasradio.com and listen there. I'm telling you, my life has been upgraded and so can yours. And if you want to get in touch with me, you want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion or simply want to offer feedback, I welcome your messages. Just click on the contact button of our website. To most people, the music industry represents a source of harmless fun and entertainment. Beneath the glossy veneer, however, lies the devastating truth of who really controls these institutions and the deeply malevolent agendas for which they're being used. Tonight's guest is a long-standing DJ and music journalist. He has written a book titled Musical Truth, which is the culmination of his five years of research into the true nature of the industry and its objectives from dark occult rituals to mind control artists and all points in between. Tonight, he will discuss how these agendas fit into the much wider picture of what's really going on in the world and crucially, how the power lies with us to bring it to an end. So strap yourself in and get ready for powerful truths. Mark Devlin is a UK-based club and radio DJ, music journalist and author. Since 1990, he has played gigs all over the UK and in over 40 countries around the world. In 2010, he underwent what he refers to as a conscious awakening, bringing a new awareness of what's really going on in the world. His special area of interest was how this ties into the mainstream music industry and the way in which A-list artists have been used to manipulate and mind control the masses in line with much larger agenda. He now presents public talks on these subjects, as well as appearing on radio and producing two regular podcast series. In early 2016, he published his book, Musical Truth, exposing the mind control manipulations of the corporate music industry and how to take back our power. His websites are markdevlin.co.uk and musicaltruthbook.com. Mark Devlin is with us today directly from Oxford, England. Hello, Mark, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? 
Hey, Mel. Good to be on, man. I'm a little tired, but uh, hopefully I'll perk up as we go on. <laughs> Understandably so. It's Friday evening. We usually don't conduct interviews on Friday, but you have allowed this to, to happen, so I'm glad. First, let me just say it was great meeting you in Philadelphia a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago during the Free Your Mind conference. And, and as I told you when we met, I've been looking to discuss this very topic for years. And when I heard about you, I had to make contact and schedule a discussion. So I'm glad we're here today. Yeah, I appreciate you reaching out to me. And likewise, it was great to meet uh, Philadelphia. Free Your Mind surely is an awesome event. And it's such a buzz to be there among like-minded people over the three days because you get a lot of empowering information from the speakers. And, you know, if you look at who was on stage that weekend, it's pretty much a who's who of all the key players in this whole truth scene. But, you know, over and above that, it's just great to vibe with people and pull that consciousness, which is something I talk about a lot. And you can really feel the energy in that building uh, of people coming together with uh, their will and their intent pretty much on the same page and you get to meet a whole bunch of people so it's great to link with yourself and I think you'd probably agree with me on the sentiments of that event. 110% and just yesterday I had uh, Mark Passio on discussing his presentation there and by the way it goes hand in hand with what you discussed too doesn't it? Well, pretty much, yeah. There's a lot of overlap between the information that the different speakers bring. And something that I've reflected on since Free Your Mind is the fact that when it comes to the solutions part, because we can go on for days about all the problems that we face and all the dark stuff that's being done to us. But when it gets to the point where we have to work out where our power lies and what we can do about this whole thing, pretty much every speaker at that conference and at every other conference that I've been to similarly talks about the same information you know they they call it different names and they might come at it from a different perspective and put different slants on it but what it all comes down to really is the recognition that the power lies with us uh, and if we would only apply our thoughts and our will and our intent and focus our consciousness in the same direction large numbers of us then we can really change the physical reality that we experience Uh, I mean, a phrase I've focused on a lot in my talks recently is actually one that comes from Alistair Crowley, where in the book of magic, he talked of magic with a K being the art and science of causing change in accordance with will. And this is what the dark occultists that have been running the show for so very long understand. And they apply this dynamic the whole time. They come together with their thoughts and their will and their intent, and they focus it in a very dark kind of direction in terms of where they want to take things for humanity. And they've been very successful at this for a very long time because they're all on the same page, because they understand how the nature of reality works, and because they have been steering things all in the same direction in accordance with each other. That's how so few individuals have been able to control so many others over such a long period. So the point where the rest of us finally wake up to this and get wise to it and start applying it in our own lives is the point where we turn this system of human enslavement around and truly take back our power. So I was impressed that so many of the speakers at Free Your Mind were basically putting out this information, as I say, in different ways, but the message ultimately is always the same because that's where the only solutions lie, as far as I can see. It's got to be a question of consciousness. Indeed, indeed. And let's begin with your story. Who is Mark Devlin? Aside from what I read, who's Mark Devlin and what happened in 2010 that made you, quote unquote, wake up 
to the truth. Well, in many ways, I'm a pretty regular guy. Uh, I've always been a lifelong music fan. I fell in love with music from about the age of five, just got into pop music. And the first record that I got really turned on to was Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody oh, first time around. Great. And uh, yeah, I loved it. I was five years old and uh, got some pocket money together or begged some from my parents and went down to my local Woolworths, which is a store we used to have here, and bought my first record, 7-inch vinyl, Queen. So from that point on, I was very much into pop music, whatever was in the charts. And in my teenage years, I kind of fine-tuned my tastes. And due to the influence of a school friend, I got into black music, basically. So it was soul, funk, hip-hop, reggae, all the kind of black music sounds that were around at the time in the mid 80s and it was also the emergence of house music at that time authentic house music coming out of chicago and later new york and new jersey so that put me on a path to getting interested in that whole scene and i decided that i really wanted to become a dj because i was so enthusiastic about music that i just wanted to communicate that to other people and i wanted them to feel the same passion towards music that i did and I thought, well, being a DJ is a great way of doing that. So uh, I don't want to make it sound easy because it was a hard road to getting established. And I was held back by a crippling lack of confidence, self-confidence. I never thought that I could get up there in a club in front of a bunch of people and direct the dance floor and, you know, provide the musical soundtrack. I really didn't believe in myself in that way. And another thing is I never would have imagined back in the day that I could be giving public talks up there on a stage and having a whole room of people focusing their attention on what I was saying. So I've had to overcome my lack of confidence in both those areas. But it's interesting because now I can really see that the path I'm on is the one that I was always supposed to be on. And this was my reason for incarnating into this reality. It's very clear to me now. So getting into music from a very young age and becoming a DJ so that I would get onto radio and start communicating with people that way and learn how to apply music to situations to really change the mood and the emotion of a crowd and really take them in a certain direction was also some life lessons that I had to learn to set me on this path. So it's very interesting to reflect how things have panned out for me and how I don't believe any of it was by chance or by accident. It was all part of my life plan, you know, whether that was planned by my higher self before I incarnated here or whether I've been sent down that path by a higher power. I don't really know, but uh, it's pretty clear that this is the path I was always supposed to be on. So, you know, I was always meant to be a music guy. And so for um, 26 years now, I've been a DJ and I've been fortunate enough to uh, present shows on many different radio stations and do gigs all over the world. Been to the US a few times, been to a few other very interesting parts of the world and played some great parties. And as you mentioned in the introduction, it wasn't until 2010 that I started to wake up to the truth of this reality in which we find ourselves. And that was a pretty devastating process, which I'm sure will be familiar to many of your listeners. And it caused me to have to reassess my whole view of what this world is all about, what we're doing here, who's really controlling things and what the agenda is. And it takes a while to assimilate all that information. And of course, it's devastating because it causes you to basically rip up and throw away 
your entire acceptance of what this reality is all about and start again with a blank sheet of paper and draw everything up from scratch. That's if you are going to go with the flow and you're going to follow the synchronicity of the universe and go where truth takes you. If you're going to open yourself up truly to truth and you're prepared to go down sometimes some pretty unsettling paths, I think there are people that want truth no matter what and they're prepared to go with it even if uh, sometimes it's dark and it's disturbing. And there are other people that can't handle the truth, to use that cliche, you know, and they just block it out. Cognitive dissonance comes in and people just bury their head in the sand and go back to what they were doing before. I think there's different categories of people and some people seem to be cut out for truth no matter what and others just don't seem to be able to, not in this lifetime anyway. So it became clear to me that I was in the former category, which is someone that has to know truth, no matter how devastating it might be. And it certainly was, as I uncovered information in the early days concerning, you know, what types of groups and networks are really controlling all aspects of our daily lives. And what I wanted to understand is, first of all, how I'd been mugged off, as we say, made a mug of, duped conned, deceived for so long. And I wanted to understand how the industry that I'd been a part of, the corporate music industry, was being utilized in conjunction with all others uh, in terms of rolling out this grand plan for where these networks want to take humanity. It's very important for me to understand how it was used. And that's been my specialist area of interest for the last five to six years. It comprises everything that's in the book. It's five years worth of my research into the true nature of the music industry and what lies beneath the glossy veneer when you scratch the surface and get to the deep underbelly, you know. And so that's where I'm at now, five to six years down the line in a very different place to where I was before. And, you know, Mark, I have a few passions in life and I think uh, they both carry the same weight and that's music and truth. And I think those are your passions, too. I mean, this show is called Veritas for a reason. Your book, Musical Truth, why the title? Well, you just touched on it there. It's my two biggest passions in life, which are now music and truth. I mean, 10 years ago, it would have been straight music. <laughs> and I might have said movies and travel as well. But as I've matured and as I've come to discover new things, then it's definitely all about truth. I'm someone that seeks to serve truth and go where truth takes me but still the music you know so musical truth just sums it all up musical youth was the name of a group that came out of the uk in the 80s so it's a bit of wordplay on that people might remember pastor duchy musical youth were um a reggae band yeah i remember exactly and a few other hits as well they did one with donna summer called unconditional love so they were called musical youth And I thought Musical Truth is kind of a catchy title, which plays on that. And it gets across the impact of what I'm trying to convey. So one thing I make clear in the book is because of the nature of the material that I'm discussing, I can't claim that on every single page, everything that I put forward is the absolute truth. And to be honest with you, I would be very suspicious of any researcher that says this book All 170,000 words of it is the truth of the matter. And this is what people need to take upon themselves. It's the ultimate truth. None of us 
can say that with 100% conviction. By its very nature, a lot of it has to be speculation or it has to be information based on our best guess from evidence that's available to us. So I make the point early on that I'm not claiming everything in the book is to be the ultimate absolute truth. It's down to readers to take on the information and go and check it out for themselves, see how it resonates with them and see, you know, whether it whether it chimes with them as truth or not. Uh, I'm putting forward what I believe to be truthful information to the best of my ability to present it as such. But uh, one consistent truth is that the official version of anything, so the Wikipedia version, the mainstream media version, the version that we're taught by uh, governments, academic establishments and the mainstream media is by and large a crock of crap from start to finish. You know, so the best place to start is by taking the official version of anything and then turning it on its head, inverting it. And probably somewhere there, you'll be getting close to where the real truth lies. It becomes clear that we live in a world of inversion. This world is insane. Everything is back to front and upside down. So you have a mainstream media that lies to us all the time. And you have a Hollywood movie industry which is supposed to be about fiction and imagination and fantasy. But you come to realize that in so many cases, Hollywood movies are telling us the truth about what's really going on in the world. So it's veiled as, as fiction and entertainment. But often there's some great truths encoded into the plot lines of Hollywood movies. So how insane is that? You know, the, the evening news is supposed to be telling us the truth and doesn't. And Hollywood movies are supposed to be about fantasy, but in so many cases they're telling us the truth. So the consistent factor in musical truth is to say the truth of a situation never lies in the official version of what we're given. So that's the starting point. And if you start there with that in mind, then I feel you're quite some way along the path to discovering the real truth. So at the end of each chapter in the book, I've got a huge section of resources, which lets readers know where I drew my information from. So I'm referencing YouTube videos, blog sites, other books, other researchers work. And I'm suggesting that people go to these sources as well and try and assimilate all this information and just see how it all checks out, which I think is a responsible way of doing it. That's right. So in addition to your book being vast when it comes to information, you have so many links. So you could be reading about this for months, folks. Now, you say this, quote, For many years I played the game and felt very much a part of the machine referred to as the industry. I did everything DJs were expected to do. Got myself onto promotional mailing lists, helped the record companies out by playing certain tunes that had been designated promotional priorities, sent off my weekly chart returned to show which records I was supporting, interviewed key artists for the radio, etc. Unquote. I hope that you don't take offense to what I'm about to ask you. In retrospect, do you feel you and your peers in the music industry were used as a tool to support an agenda? Yes, I do. I certainly feel that way now with the benefit of having done the research and with the benefit of maturity. And, you know, I, I keep making reference to that because I'm at a point in life now where I think if you are going to follow your path in the natural way, 
you should have a certain amount of spiritual maturity. So there were things I was doing in my 20s and my early 30s, which I hope I wouldn't still be making those same mistakes now, uh, because you're supposed to mature spiritually. You're supposed to grow in this life experience. You're supposed to learn from mistakes and apply them in your life. And that's a process that I feel I'm going through now. So there's stuff that I couldn't see back then that I can see so clearly now in terms of how I was a part of an agenda. Really, I was never a key player in the industry in terms of having a corporate role within it. And it's something that I'm very grateful for because I never worked for a big corporation. I never held any kind of, uh, you know, position in that way. I've always worked on a self-employed freelance basis. So I've still pretty much been a free, uh, sovereign spirit throughout all the years I've been working in these industries. And I really count myself so lucky to have never been caught up in, in the corporate track in that way because there were times back in the 1990s where I wanted nothing more than to be a DJ on one of the big uh, national stations in the UK. And there was a time where I wanted nothing more than to be working for the BBC. <laughs> and thank God that never happened, <laughs> given, given the true nature of the BBC and what we now know about it. But I knew no better back in the day. So I was constantly contacting BBC stations. So you didn't get to meet uh, Jimmy Saville then? Uh, sadly not, no. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> uh, and a whole bunch of others. So I wanted nothing more than to be a part of the BBC. But, you know, you can call it fate or... Uh, the life plan that was set out for me, for whatever reason, I was never snapped up by the BBC and I was never snapped up by some of the other corporations that I did apply to work for. And I can look back on it now and consider it my greatest gift, the fact that I was never snapped up by these corporations because it enabled me to stay independent. And it's become clear to me that when you sign a contract with corporations of that nature, you are pretty much signing away you know, the rest of your life, you are beholden to these corporations in Selling a very major soul. way. Yes, in very, in, in, in many ways, uh, and not strictly metaphorical. There's a very real sense in which artists do sell their souls in exchange for fame and fortune, as I've come to discover. So, uh, yeah, best thing that never happened to me was not getting snapped up by one of these corporations and being able to maintain something of a free spirit and to be honest with you i don't think i would be able to speak out as freely as i now do about stuff that i've discovered if i had been beholden to one of these corporations because they don't like it when you uh, reveal secrets and when you spill the beans and when you become a whistleblower you know and it's far easier to do that when you've not been signed up as part of the machinery in one of these uh, corporations Absolutely. So and, you know, so some people criticize me because I had a career in the financial industry where some of my clients were Monsanto, Bechtel, defense contractors, and even right. consulted with companies about free trade agreements. That's before I woke up. It sure. seems we both worked inside the belly of the beast, and now we, we can deconstruct it. Now we know better, don't we? Absolutely. Um, we all come from different backgrounds. You said you interviewed Mark Passio recently. Um, I'm yes. sure everyone knows Mark Passio's backstory. Uh, he was led into various dark occult groups, such as the Church of Satan. And clearly now he will tell you that that was a tactical error on his part. And he's seen the mistakes that he's made. And he's now 
making amends for that and he's trying to rectify mistakes that he made in his past and we all do that you know with me i can see how i I was manipulated and coerced into an agenda that was being laid out by the music industry and i played my part in that as a key participant at the weekend just gone i was at the open mind conference in the netherlands and there was a bunch of people there including ian crane i don't know if you're familiar with ian oh yeah we've had on the show before sure Sure. Okay. Well, I was chatting away with Ian and he was talking about his background in the gas and oil industry. And he worked for Schlumberger, which is kind of difficult to say. Uh, And, you know, Ian has now become an anti-fracking activist. But back in the day, he was working for the very corporations that are doing all this damage now and raping and pillaging the earth. And Ian tells the story that, you know, it took him a while to come to terms with the true nature of these industries and what they were really all about. So we all have to go through this process of learning and coming to realize the error of our ways. And we all make mistakes. It's part of our life path. So the key thing is, are you going to continue to make mistakes or are you going to uh, face up to your responsibilities and realize what it is you've been a part of and take steps to rectify that and step outside of it and get on a more truthful path? You know, that that's the real key and that's the challenge. So for myself, I was a part of an agenda very much connected to hip hop music because I've been a DJ that's played a lot of hip hop music over the years. And I can see now how there definitely was a mind-controlling, socially engineering agenda being laid out through the hip-hop genre from the 1990s onwards. Many people would refer to the genre in question as gangster rap. And that's a label that back in the day, back in the early 90s, I would have rejected and I would have said it's a creation of the media and I would have denied that there's any such agenda going on. I used to defend all the stuff that was going into the lyrical content of hip hop music by saying it's part of the art form. It's artists expressing themselves by documenting what really goes on on the street, in the ghetto. It doesn't uh, affect people's perceptions and behaviors. That's just a myth. Uh, it's just great music and it's edgy and it's dangerous and it's not for everyone. But, you know, uh, it will resonate with people that it's supposed to. But now, as I say, I've done the research. I was very ignorant back then. I'd done no research. I was just looking at what lay on the surface and I was taking that whole genre as it had been presented to me. But having done the research and again, with the benefit of some spiritual maturity, I can now understand how that whole genre, which has come to be known as gangster rap, was created by the corporations, by these industries, deliberately to subverse and degrade an entire culture, an entire art form, and to lead a particular fan base of that music off down a certain direction. The direction of the prison industrial complex, doesn't it? Exactly. Well, it ties into this famous letter, which you might be aware of. Oh, yeah, we which, discussed that. I'm glad that you remember we were discussing it. Go ahead. Yeah, we touched on that at the conference, right? Yes, you and I, yes. Yeah. So there's this letter which emerged a few years ago and it appeared in the hip-hop press of the time. I think we're going back about five or six years. And it purported to be from a record industry executive. He or she remained unnamed. So we don't know exactly who this individual was. And inevitably, this has led some people to claim that it was a fake or it was a hoax in some way. So it may be, but I certainly feel that it was genuine because all the information that it contained absolutely checks out. 
and it ties in with so much else that I've come to discover. So the story from this individual was that they worked for one of the big record companies back in the early 90s. And in 1991, they were called to a meeting at this private residence somewhere in Los Angeles. And present at the meeting were a bunch of other representatives from other record labels that this person recognized. So it was all the, the key record labels of that time that were being represented. And they wheeled in a couple of individuals who nobody from the record companies had seen before. And they didn't really understand what the nature of the meeting was until these people, you know, spilt the beans. And they identified themselves as being representatives of the private prison industrial complex in the US. So prisons for profit. And they spoke about how they wanted to work in conjunction with these record labels to change and shape and mold the nature of hip hop music that was going to get put out to the American public and the worldwide public over the coming years. The plan was to introduce lyrics and themes that glorified criminal lifestyles so that you would have rappers constantly talking about gang banging and pushing drugs and uh, prostitution and gambling and criminal rackets and all these various other criminal lifestyles. The idea, they said, would be to manipulate and affect large numbers of very gullible uh, consumers. And this would largely be young black males that would listen to this music. And the idea would be to coerce them into adopting petty criminal lifestyles themselves uh, in tribute or in an emulation of the lifestyles of these rappers. Glamorizing crime, essentially. Yeah, exactly. And as I say, back then, you would have found me saying this sort of stuff doesn't happen. It's ridiculous. People can't be manipulated in that way. But... <laughs> Yes, they can. <laughs> oh, how much they can. When you come to understand how mind control works, particularly... So you defend it. You defended that, that almost as a religious zealot at the time. Yeah, in many ways, because I was such a music fan and I was so much into it myself that I couldn't see the wood for the trees. I couldn't see what is now so blatantly obvious to me. It was the sins of my youth, you know. I was in my 20s then and I didn't know any better. But it just goes to show how easy it is to manipulate people because they manipulated me as well as, it would appear, large numbers of these uh, communities which were in their crosshairs. So the idea was that the music would get changed. All these corporations would change the music at the same time in tandem with each other. And we definitely saw that happen. So from the early 90s onwards, the sort of lyrical themes that you got in hip-hop definitely did change. So it was all about uh, acquiring money through criminal activities and all this other stuff. And so the idea was that you get all these uh, predominantly young black males, because that's the, the group that they had in their targets, that would be adopting these criminal lifestyles. They would get uh, snapped up by the police and they would get thrown into these privately owned jails. And so as long as the music kept on uh, affecting people's behaviours in this way, the prison industrial complex would have a constant, never-ending supply of young black males filling its cells and therefore making 
shed loads of money for them. So this was the plan that was outlined to these music industry executives. And the person that is said to have wrote this letter explains that they were disgusted and outraged by this and wanted no part in it. And it's a bit like what you see in James Bond films, where you get villains like Goldfinger laying out these criminal master plans. And you get one of the people they're presenting it to saying, I want no part in this. And they're asked to leave the room. And in most cases, they're executed as soon as they leave the room. So they can't divulge any of the secrets. But this person says that they, along with one other executive, wanted no part in it. So they were invited to leave the room and sign a contract stating that they would never divulge what went on in this meeting. And so they didn't hear any more. And this person says that they grappled with their conscience for the next 20 years. And finally, they realized they had to come forward and say what they'd been a part of. So as I say, some people will say this was a hoax, but I really don't think it was because all of this checks out. The timeline is absolutely correct in terms of when the music started to change. And look at the lyrical themes that we've had in mainstream hip hop. I'm not saying all hip hop because I'm certainly one to know that conscious, meaningful hip hop records are still being made. Absolutely they are. And it's very powerful stuff. But in terms of the acts that are pushed through the mainstream by all the big corporations. The only lyrical themes you get to hear of now are, you know, criminal lifestyles, uh, gang banging, drive-by shootings, uh, up in the club with girls with fat asses, you know, uh, popping champagne, gold chains, how much money you've got, throwing wads of cash up in the air, and not a whole lot else. You know, all this vacuous inane stuff there are no meaningful conscious messages going into this music anymore there used to be you know when it first emerged as an art form in the 1970s going all the way through the 80s into the very early 90s you could find a lot of artists that were being touted by the mainstream that were talking about stuff that had a message but that was very quickly snuffed out as the night is progressed and so we had all this different type of music coming through and it becomes clear now that it was absolutely part of a plan to mind control an entire generation of people and steer them off down a certain path. And it's just one of so many tactics that have been used through the decades. They've got it down to a fine art form. Whether you believe that letter or not, folks, all you have to do is find out the facts of what has happened since then. Just Google, go to Google Images and just type incarcerated Americans and you'll see so many charts. And look at 1990 and how this chart goes almost from being horizontal to diagonal to vertical. So obviously, we have, this is as of 2006, we went from a few hundred thousands to over 2.5 million inmates. And I bet you that number is even higher today. Sure. And so much of this goes on on a subliminal level which is something I talk about big time in my presentations. So much of what's being done to us is aimed at the subconscious mind, which is why there's so much denial. That's why there would have been denial from me back in the 90s, because I didn't understand that what was happening was being done subconsciously. So there's all kinds of signs and symbols, and there's all kinds of methods of communication that are aimed at being absorbed by the collective subconscious. And we're not aware of that because this information is not brought through to the conscious mind. The conscious mind analyzes information and scrutinizes it and uh, puts it through the blender to see whether it makes sense and to, 
you know, uh, see how it fits into what's going on in the world. But the subconscious mind is where symbols reside. It loves symbols. It soaks up visual information the whole time. The subliminal mind absorbs millions of pieces of information every second. And the conscious mind is just not capable of processing that amount of information. So a very limited amount of it is brought through into the conscious mind where it can be understood. And the rest of it is lodged away in the subconscious. And sometimes it comes out in dreams. So a lot of the stuff we experience in dreams is stuff that we've absorbed into our subconscious, but we have no memory of it. And it's clear to me now, and psychologists and scholars in this area have been telling us for a very long time, that what is absorbed into our subconscious actually does affect our thoughts and our behaviours and our perceptions and our values and our views of the world. So if you spend a lifetime listening to a genre of music, which is being directed and controlled by corporations who have some very malevolent intent, and they absolutely know what they're doing, they understand how magic with a K works. And they understand the power of symbolism. They can be pumping all this stuff into the subconscious minds of large numbers of people year after year, decade after decade. And it's actually affecting the way these large numbers of people see themselves and the way they act, and the way they behave. But if you told them it was going on, they would flat out deny it and tell you you're crazy to your face because they've not researched how this stuff works. So, again, this is how those that are controlling things have gained such a tactical advantage over everyone else because they understand the world of the occult and how it all works. I'm sure Mark Passio would have told you this, and that's absolutely the case. Many times. Yeah. Now, you remember 1983, the movie Scarface came out. Sure. Then 1984 to 1989, I was a huge fan of Miami Vice. These, that movie and this TV, the TV series laid the groundwork, in my opinion, and they found, wow, we can really change people's psyche by having all these shows. What about if we really implement this into the music? 89, Miami Vice is gone. 1990, 91, it's when all of this happened. Even Don Johnson, the star of Miami Vice, came out recently and said that he's totally in favor of legalizing drugs because it would de-glamorize criminal activity. Right. Your take on that? Yeah, uh... I'm sure that show had an effect on the sort of themes that were getting explored in the music. The movie Scarface certainly did. I mean, there are so many references to Tony Montana and various aspects of Scarface, you know, Sosa, the villain uh, in hip hop music. There's even a rapper that calls himself Scarface, Scarface right? from Texas. You know, his whole persona is modeled on that. And there's whole songs, you know, Mob Deep sampled the Giorgio Moroda soundtrack to Scarface and mm -hmm. Nas, Nas has uh, made a whole load of tracks referencing it. And so many rappers have. So it's a very influential movie. And also The Godfather, to a certain extent, has influenced the sort of stuff that goes into hip hop tracks as well. But, you know, an interesting thing, which I outline in the book, uh, Scarface has kind of been pushed aside in recent years. And what we now get is constant references in hip hop music to the Illuminati. <laughs> and it's presented as this kind of mysterious, uh, like covert criminal organization, a bit like Spectre out of the James Bond films, as if it's something that can be glamorized in a criminal kind of way. And you have rappers now making references to the Illuminati as if they're a part of this organization. So that's very much 
a twisting and a distorting of the facts when it comes to the networks of secret societies that are directing every aspect of human affairs. The Illuminati has come to be a catch-all term pretty much for these different networks. And I feel the way it's been represented in these tracks is quite misleading to people. And it's not giving the true picture of how things really operate. We also had a record by Madonna, ridiculously, which came out a couple of years ago, actually called Illuminati. And she, in the lyrics, she's making out that the Illuminati is basically this benign little sort of uh, country club that uh, people join and you know that they're all about spiritual upliftment and helping people and steering society in a, a positive kind of way and uh, the outline the, the the lyrics kind of outline all this stuff and it's very misleading for young kids who have heard these whisperings about the illuminati to then hear madonna telling you that oh it's nothing to be afraid of you know the illuminati is trying to help people and we can all be a part of its teachings <laughs> which is kind of obscuring the facts so uh yeah going back to your question i, I just think that uh as you go through different phases then there are different cultural influences on this music so a while back it would have been scarface maybe miami vice influence the sort of stuff that went into lyrics as well and these days you're getting a lot of references to the illuminati from a lot of rappers isn't it interesting how that's come about well the question is because i understand it miami vice glamorized drugs scarface glamorized drugs it's a for profit but when it comes to the illuminati symbology for example you mentioned madonna i can only remember you know a few years ago when we saw her at the super bowl katie perry beyonce great combination of bread and circus music and the destruction of the super bowl all together and we see them with these acts that would make alistair crowley proud was alistair crowley the real first rock star yeah, I refer to him as such in quite a few instances because his life was all about sex and drugs and rock and roll. Maybe not so much rock and roll, but pl certainly plenty of ritual sex and mind-altering drugs. And he's been such an influence on so many musicians through the decades. And surely that has to become a pertinent question for people. There are lots of recurring themes in the backstory of the industry on both sides of the Atlantic, as I've been bringing out in all these public talks that I've been doing. So there are connections everywhere back into military intelligence. There are connections everywhere into paedophilia and satanic ritual abuse, unfortunately. I wish it was some other way, but I'm just delivering the facts. And there are connections into the dark occult mystery school teachings of Alistair Crowley. So you started this show by reading out some of the blurb from the book, which starts, to most people, the music industry represents uh, a source of fun and entertainment, or words to that effect. And that is what it's supposed to be about. And if you asked most people in the street, what is the purpose of the music industry? They would say, well, it's all about entertainment and having fun and just forgetting all the stresses of the working week and letting your hair down and enjoying yourself. And absolutely, it should be. So then a question that people need to ask themselves is why there are constant links back into all these other unsettling elements, military intelligence, satanic ritual abuse and the dark occult mystery school teachings, teachings of Alistair Crowley. What connection should there be between this notorious occultist 
and practitioner of the dark arts and the entertainment industry if everything is innocent and nothing to worry about. Well, the fact that Crowley pops up everywhere gives you a little clue as to the true nature of those who ultimately control these industries at the very top of the pyramid, if you want to use that particular analogy. If you imagine a pyramid right up at the very top of the capstone is where the real power lies, and then it filters down to all other levels of the pyramid. With the consumer base, regular Joes in the street, you and me, being right at the very bottom, you know, as the ones that prop up all the upper levels. So uh, these individuals and these networks that are doing the controlling are very much into many of the teachings and many of the mystery schools that Alistair Crowley was a part of, whether it's the OTO or the Golden Dawn or the AA. And we see uh, evidence of these influences everywhere. So there are artists that have made no bones about the fact that they've been fascinated by the works of Crowley. The Beatles, many connections from the Beatles into Crowley. Famously, he appears on the sleeve of the Sgt. Pepper album, that iconic sleeve where there's a whole bunch of the Beatles heroes lined up in the background. Then the Rolling Stones were completely fascinated by Crowley. The Stones had a close working relationship with a satanic filmmaker by the name of Kenneth Anger. And Kenneth Anger was very much into Crowley. He actually travelled out to the Abbey of Thelema in Sicily, which is where Crowley uh, established his Thelema belief system uh, way back in the early 1900s. And uh, Kenneth Anger travelled out there with Alfred Kinsey, who's known as a sexologist. He was a guy that uh, did a lot of studies into the true nature of sexuality and published a bunch of works about it. But it turns out that he himself was a Satanist and uh, possibly a paedophile and certainly a sexual deviant, which Janice Barcelo outlined at the Free Your Mind conference mm -hmm. just recently. So those two travelled out to Thelema to try and revive this abbey that Crowley had established out there in Sicily. Such was their fascination with his works. The Rolling Stones uh, were involved in these two movies that um, Anger put out called Lucifer Rising and Invocation of My Demon Brother. Interesting titles. The Rolling Stones, of course, also had a song called Sympathy for the Devil and an album called Their Satanic Majesty's Request. So there's lots of dark stuff going on there and it always links back into Crowley. David Bowie was very infatuated by the works of Crowley. In his song Quicksand, he references Crowley and the Golden Dawn in the lyrics. Elton John has expressed a uh, an interest in Crowley and reportedly owns a whole load of dark occult books. Uh, Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin actually established a bookstore in Kensington in London, which specialised in occult books and various mystery school teachings. And he was fascinated with Crowley as well, to the point that he, he took up the hours, right? Yeah, he bought his famous house, Boleskin House, on the shores of Loch Ness in Scotland. And he lived there apparently from 1971 through to 1991. Rather him than me, judging by uh, the stories I've heard about some of the stuff that went on in that house, Crowley lived there himself in the early 1900s. And he's said to have performed many rituals and seances. And on one occasion, he reportedly conjured up some demonic entities from other realms. And he didn't complete the ritual 
meaning that he wasn't able to send these entities away to wherever it is that they came from. And Crowley was called away on business urgently. And so the presence of these things was left kind of floating around in the house. And this seems to have had an impact on future owners, because when you look at the backstory of Boleskine House, it's pretty sinister. Many of the owners have died in strange circumstances. One of them was George Sanders, who was an actor. He played the saint, the original saint oh, sure. in, in the films in the 1940s and 50s. And he appeared in one of the Pink Panther films as well. And he committed suicide. And there's all sorts of other um, dark stuff which is said to have occurred at Boleskine House. So how Jimmy Page managed to live there for so long is... <laughs> anybody's guess i certainly wouldn't wanted to spend a night there but uh yeah he sold the house in 1991 and just recently i believe it was last year we got the news that boleskine house just happened to have burnt to the ground in very strange circumstances so it's gone <laughs> what took it so long <laughs> well yeah uh Jimmy e Page. Even, yeah sorry go ahead, no go ahead go ahead even through to the current generation of artists there's famous pictures of Jay-Z sporting a sweatshirt, which says, do what thou wilt, which is part of Crowley's famous phrase, do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law from the book of the law. So from, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones all the way through to Jay-Z, there's been a fascination with Crowley through all these different decades and all these different genres. And I think a very pertinent question for people just coming to this information for the first time would be, why is that? Why should that be? That was my next question for you. Because in the past, Beatles and so on, yes, we saw it on the sleeve and, and so on. But now it's becoming very, very overtly. As you say, JC, every time you see he has the hands in a certain way, he's wearing certain badges that are obviously related to, to, to the occult. Why this all of a sudden becomes overt? Well, we get into... What has been the main crux of the public talks that I've been doing recently, to be honest, and it's a big part of the book as well, which is why the dark controllers feel the need to communicate so many aspects of what they're really all about to us when you might expect them to keep it under wraps and keep it secret. If they're trying to control large numbers of the population in dark occult ways, why would they reveal their methods and why would they give us an opportunity to understand you know the tactics that they're using so we get into the areas of free will consciousness consent and natural law and this really is key to understanding why all this stuff goes on as far as i'm concerned and all my research into these areas has led me to this conclusion and many other researchers as well i should say i'm certainly not alone in putting forward this point of view. I believe that these controllers feel the need to communicate to us aspects of their true nature and to let us know what they're doing so that they are hijacking our free will consciousness and our consent. We are blessed with free will consciousness as humans. It's our greatest spiritual gift. We have the opportunity to make conscious choices in terms of our behaviours and our actions. We can choose to align ourselves with truth and morality, which is where natural law comes in, or we can choose to go down a different path and go our own way. And that's where Satanism comes in, which is 
the opposite of the polar opposite of following the path of truth when you really get down to it, the true nature of it. And so we get into tacit approval and implied consent as well. So when these individuals give us little coded cryptic representations of what they're all about and what they're doing, and this ties into predictive programming, it ties into all the signs and symbols that we see artists like Jay-Z and Kanye West and Beyonce and all the rest of them doing in stage shows, all the symbolism that we see getting spliced into music videos and on record sleeves and stuff like that. What they're doing is getting the unspoken consent of the general public. Because they put all this stuff out there in cryptic, encoded form, probably up to now, 99% of people seeing this stuff have absolutely no conscious understanding of what it represents. It goes right over their heads. And only a very small number have been able to understand the true nature of it. But that number is changing rapidly overnight, let me tell you, uh, as people become more symbol literate. And many, many researchers, myself and so many others, are putting information out there to help people understand how to interpret these things. So, you know, that ratio is is changing very, very quickly. But up to now, most people have not understood what's going on. So they've been hijacking our free will, consciousness and our consent, because as far as they see it, when we don't voice any kind of objection to what they're doing, they take that as us basically saying that we're okay with it. So to not say no is to tacitly say yes in their sick, twisted mentality. And they do have a sick, twisted, distorted perspective on it, I would suggest, because ultimately we are, of course, talking about psychopaths who are not very well. They're mentally ill. So I always make the point that perhaps we shouldn't expect them to have an absolutely crystal clear grasp on things, given these are mentally ill individuals. But nevertheless, it's clear that they do understand how the dynamic of natural law works. And this is called spiritual law, universal law. It comes with so many other names, but the concept is always the same. And at the root of it lies the golden rule teaching of do no harm. And that can be expanded as do not treat others in a way you would not wish to be treated yourself. So as I'm sure Mark Passio would have pointed out, this is the non-aggression principle, uh, the feminine aspect of this dynamic, do no harm. And that is a, a moral code by which we are required to live by or invited to live by. And it dishes out consequences in a karmic manner, according to whether we choose to align our thoughts, emotions and actions with that universal truth or whether we dis- uh, decide to go another way. So I think these sick, twisted controllers are observing this tenet of do no harm. You're not supposed to undertake actions that harm others. But if the others are okay with it and they consent to the situation and they're basically saying we don't have a problem with this, then as they see it, they've done no harm. And now they're off the hook from the karma that would ordinarily come down to bear upon them. So this is my view and the view of many others as to why they feel the need to communicate all this stuff, revelation of the method, because something has to account for why they're doing it. You know, so any skeptic that rejects that explanation and says it's all a load of garbage, I would 
love to hear an alternative explanation as to why so much time and energy and so many logistics are employed in putting all this stuff out there because getting all these symbols into these videos and directing all these artists to flash up all these symbols takes a lot of resources you know and there's got to be a good reason for doing it over and over again so it's my view that it goes into these metaphysical and spiritual aspects and the controllers understand the nature of reality they understand how the universe works they don't like it they hate the fact that they're governed by natural law, but they feel they can get around it because in their mentality, they see themselves as gods uh, and, you know, far superior to the rest of us. And I really do believe that they feel they can cheat karmic consequence by putting the onus and the emphasis on us. So when we don't say no, as far as they're concerned, we've said we're OK with it. And speaking of feeling superior than us, even mentally, let's take 9-11. I think that's what woke you up. It's what woke me up. And I remember when I had had past tense conversations with friends or relatives, which I don't have anymore. If they don't want to become awake, that's their issue. But about 9-11 and how it was probably a false flag event. First, most haven't heard the term false flag. Then I try to explain what it means so I can open their, their eyes. Then I would say, you know, come on, they would never do that. If they did, the media would tell us about it. I, I know that you, you agree yeah. with that. And I realize there are many people whose destiny is to remain asleep, sumpified, yes. sumpified with TV, GMO food and pharmaceuticals. They look at us as the crazy ones. And I think that it's a huge part of the strategy to demonize, to ridicule, to, to shun us in alternative media. Why? Because we're stepping off the reservation. They don't want the slaves to wander off the plantation. Your thoughts on this? Those are the two classics, aren't they? They would never do that. And if they did, the media would tell us about it. They're the <laughs> right. two classic misconceptions that people still labor under. And it's just incredible to, to, to still hear people uttering those phrases. And to be honest, Mel, you know, it just astounds me that there are still people in the world that will accept the official narrative of 9-11. Bin Laden did it. It was 19 Arabs with box cutters and all the rest of it. And, you know, the U.S. government couldn't possibly have known it was coming. It just dumbfounds me that people have not seen through that one yet. And I think it highlights what you've just outlined there, which is there are people in this world whose destiny it is to live a life of ignorance and to never discover great truths. It comes down to the true nature of reality and what we're all doing here, which is something I've spent a great deal of time musing and reflecting on over the past five years. I've listened to the thoughts of many researchers and authors in this area, and I've come to the understanding that before each of us incarnates into this reality, we make the choice in a form of higher consciousness, our higher selves, our spirit souls. We make certain choices as to the type of life we're going to live. So a great deal of that comes pre-planned. There is, of course, a lot of flexibility, which is where free will consciousness comes in, because if every aspect of your life was pre-planned, there would be no free will. So I do believe that the basic framework of our lives in terms of where we're going to live, 
what family we're going to be a part of and the broad nature of the work we're going to do and, and you know, the, the type of activities we're going to undertake are predetermined by our higher selves. And then everything else is open to free will and we can veer off in one direction or another, depending on the choices that we opt to take during our time here. So within that dynamic, there will be people whose life plan involves them waking up at some point or other to great truths and aligning themselves with that and going off down that path and opening themselves up to the universe, to synchronicity and allowing themselves to free flow and be led, you know, wherever the universe takes them. So I think that would be people like myself and yourself and I'm sure a whole bunch of people listening to this show. But I also believe there are individuals who in that higher form of themselves in spirit soul form make the choice to live a life of ignorance so they don't discover these great truths in life and they block them out and it's all to do with the experiences that we choose to have in terms of our spiritual growth so when you look at the, the bigger picture and if you consider that we don't just spend one lifetime in this reality we spend many, many lifetimes. This is where reincarnation comes in, which as far as I'm concerned is very real. Uh, you know, there can be value in the grand scheme of things in living a life of ignorance in terms of lessons that you need to learn in the long term and experiences that you wish to undergo. So, you know, that would be why someone might make that choice to live a life of ignorance. And so when you get people that do wake up to truth and then get very passionate about trying to communicate that truth to others as you should because you take on an obligation and a responsibility when you come to understand great truths to try and impart those to other people to anyone that will listen and take it upon themselves you know we all encounter people that just don't want to hear it they're not having it it doesn't matter how much information you put in front of them it doesn't matter how compelling it is uh, how blatantly obvious it might be there are people that just don't want to hear it they will block it out they will mock you they will get very defensive they will hate you sometimes they'll even want to kill you for putting this information out there they just do not want to hear it and it becomes clear that you reach a point where you've just got to back off from these individuals because you're never going to be able to get through to them. It's kind of written that you're never going to be able to get through to them. And the ones that you need to concentrate on imparting truthful information to are the ones that show some little spark of recognition of what it is you're talking about. You know, you can always tell these people there's a little glint in their eye or there's something about their behavior that shows that they are actually open to this information or potentially open to it. And they're the people that you need to work on. But the other group, really, you could waste an entire human lifetime trying to get through to them in terms of imparting truth, and you'll still never be able to do it. That's my view on things. You know, people might disagree, but as I say, after a great deal of reflecting and, and studying of these areas, that's the conclusion I've come to. You know, Mark, when, when I think of the ancient ones who built these monuments all over the world that we cannot even replicate with today's technology, something tells me ignorance was probably viewed as a mental disorder back then and enlightenment was part of their daily diet if you will today ignorance is bliss and is viewed as the norm but if you're listening to this radio program folks then you are the minority 
you are taking it upon yourself to open your mind. But most importantly, you are unlearning everything and starting from scratch. And we have more unlearning and learning when we come back. Mark, we have to take a quick break. How can people buy Musical Truth and learn more about your work? Okay, well, Musical Truth is on Amazon. There's a paperback version, a hardback version, and a Kindle version. So just type in Mark Devlin Musical Truth into Amazon and you'll find it. Also, I'm selling signed copies myself. So if anyone wants a copy direct from the author, they can send me an email, mark at markdevlin.co.uk. And if they want to pay by PayPal, then I'll sign a copy and post it out to them. And that's a better deal for me. It supports me more that way. So if anyone wants to do that, just drop me an email and you can get hold of it there. And there's some information about it at musicaltruthbook.com. And I highly, highly recommend this book, folks. And when you buy it, don't skip around. Go step by step by step, because he has done it in a very chronological way that makes sense. So much more when we come back with Mark Devlin, directly from Oxford, England. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com click on members or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs if you are listening on youtube like subscribe and share it don't forget to visit the veritas store where you can purchase pure organic sulfur earthing and grounding products supplements a usb drive with all our shows gift certificates rebounders fulvic acid full body vibration machines and much more now we'll take a short intermission Listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Enjoy.